Father, please come and grip our hearts by your spirit now so that we would know the majesty of Christ. We would know this cry that we have, Abba, Father, is a wonderful, liberating cry that your sons and daughters have toward the God of heaven and earth. Let us know this freedom that we have in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The context to refresh us again, the Galatian churches are turning away from the gospel of Christ to pursue a form of false Christianity which seeks to keep their right standing with God based on religious customs found in the law. And Paul has just explained that no one will ever be justified, that is declared righteous, no one will ever be justified by works of the law because our hearts are too sick to follow. Our hearts are too sick to follow the law and so we are declared righteous because of God's gift of salvation. Now, from chapter 3, verse 10, Paul explains that if you attempt to be right with God based on works of the law, then you are cursed. You will be damned. Cursed is obviously the opposite of blessing. God's blessing is to make his face shine upon us. God's curse is to turn his face away from us, to damn us. And the reason is because if there's any part of you that tries to achieve or keep right standing with God based on the law, then you are obligated to keep the whole thing which you cannot do. Now, if we look at the first five verses here uh, in chapter 3, verses 10 to 14, Paul takes these passages from Deuteronomy, from Leviticus and from Habakkuk, the ones from Deuteronomy. Uh, here is the, the first one we come across. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And then uh, from verse 12, after he says, the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. So these are saying the same thing, which is basically that if you choose to live by the law, then it is an all or nothing thing. If you choose to follow the law, then it is, um, you are obligated to completely follow the law as your form of right standing with God. But as Paul shows here, in verse 11, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. So he takes this passage from Habakkuk, the same one we have in Romans 1, which was a significant passage for a lot of people. The righteous shall live by faith or the just shall live by faith. Those who are declared righteous will live by faith. Paul shows that God's purpose was always through trusting in his promised Messiah, people would be justified instead of complete obedience to the law, right? Like, I think we have this. We have this hopefully drilled into us. Paul's point is that the, the law is an impossible task in our natural state. We are simply too rebellious. Now, we will look at the uh, second half of that little passage there, verses 13 and 14 later. But for now, if my assumptions are correct, probably all of us hear this and we might be thinking this whole issue of reverting back to the law isn't really relevant for me. This whole issue of trying to stay right with God based on works of obedience is really not relevant 
Would I be correct in assuming that is that's kind of the general idea? Like it's not really that big of a, a deal for us. We're not going to we're not at risk of going back to these sort of purification laws, sacrificing animals as the means of right standing with God. It's really not such a, a big deal for us. We're already a pretty lawless, anti-authoritarian society anyway. It's pretty um, easy for us to grab hold of this idea of the gospel salvation being a gift and we say awesome that works for me i like gifts i really don't like obedience to law but there are very dangerous aspects of this which i believe creep in they have already crept in to the modern church and they have the potential to influence us there is a certain form of moralism that can be present in many of us, particularly those of us who have been in the church for a long time. There is this idea of uh, a moralistic way of following Christ. And what I mean by that, what I mean by moralism, is the idea of treating the Christian life as the need to live by a basic level of morality. This is what's sort of undergirding I think a lot of the time, subconsciously, your idea of Christianity, the Christian life is more about things like not having sex before marriage, trying to stay sexually pure, not swearing too much, attending a church semi-regularly, opening up the Bible and praying enough to satisfy what, what you deem to be appropriate for a Christian. And of course, when someone asks of you, you say you're a Christian, you say you go to church. And that's kind of like the sort of Christian equivalent of the five pillars of the, the faith, the five pillars of moralistic Christianity is sort of just abiding by these forms of moral virtue instead of a desire, a deep desire to want to know Jesus Christ intimately. And that is the whole point of Christianity. And if that is not there, then it's not Christianity. There has to be a deep desire to want to know Jesus Christ. And this form of moralism, which is indeed in the modern church, it helps suppress the reality that there is little to no desire to actually commune with Jesus. This form of moralism suppresses the reality that in you there is little to no desire to actually commune with Jesus. There's a lot of desire for other things like social things, other events, um, but there is no uh, genuine desire to actually follow Jesus. There is this sort of uh, sense that undergirds a lot of modern Christianity, which is basically uh, the idea of abiding by these moral codes and so you affirm yourself as a christian you feel assured because you abide by these moral codes rather than a desire within you that wants to know jesus that wants to come to him as the source of all good and the antidote to this moralism is to surrender your life to christ because this moralism usually comes when you have not surrendered your life to Christ, so you need these moral virtues in your life to sort of pay God off. Remember the story of the woman um, who I mentioned in one of the first sermons in Galatians who lived her life effectively um, by the idea that Christianity is about being a good person. And that's what it means to sort of follow Christ. 
And she said that that made her feel comfortable because she could keep God at a distance. There was a limit to what he could ask of her because she brought something to the table. Being a Christian meant being a good person, going to church, doing these things. And that kept God at a distance. Whereas then when she came across the reality that salvation is by grace alone through faith, she realized that God can demand everything of her. God demands her life because salvation comes because of nothing that she has done. Whereas this moralistic way of thinking is sort of subconsciously there and it allows us to sort of keep God at a distance. It allows us to go through this new version of sort of pseudo-Christianity where we, we do Christian things, but deep in our hearts, there is no desire to actually want to commune with Jesus. And was this not the issue of the Israelites and the reason why God said to them, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's not sinking in. There's not something within their hearts that wants to know me. And Jesus said the same thing of the people in his day. And the danger is that most people who live by this moralism usually have a tendency to call others legalistic or moralistic when things like the idea of the obedience of the faith, the sort of cost of discipleship, this idea of thrusting yourself into this deep ocean of pursuing Christ, when this high bar that scripture gives of the cost of a disciple comes before them, they usually resist and say that's legalistic because what happens is the bar has then become higher than the bar that they have set for their comfortable level of Christianity, and that becomes a threat. And so they push it away and discard it as legalism because it threatens their understanding of following Jesus. But here's the thing, if you genuinely receive the gospel of grace, if you genuinely receive the gospel of grace, then when you are confronted by the high bar that scripture does set out, you would not feel any threat because you know it was never by obedience to those things that brought you salvation. That was never the way you got in. So it's not a threat to you. God, God's pleasure never came upon you because you lived by these moral codes. Whereas if undergirding your life is this idea that you are a Christian because you live by these moral codes, when someone else points out the high bar that scripture sets, it will be a threat to you. But if you've received the gospel of grace, then because we naturally stumble and we slip and we fall into patterns of ill discipline, when we hear the high bar of scripture, instead of feeling a threat, we will be convicted by the spirit to seek the grace of God, to grow in this, to say, yes, I recognize there is an inadequacy. I want to grow in this. Grant me grace to grow because the way I received grace was by a gift so you can do it again. You can give me the gift to grow in pursuing Christ. If there is a form of moralism, then you're in danger of following the same pattern of the Galatians who were straying from the gospel to follow moral principles as their right standing instead of following the natural result of the gospel, which is a joyful pursuit of intimacy with Christ. So this is totally relevant for us. So I don't want, want, this, want us to sort of um, discard this as kind of saying, well, I'm not in the same 
boat as these people. There's no risk of me reverting to the law as right standing with God. But I wonder if we do examine ourselves, if there's actually things that are present in our lives that show that maybe we're at more risk of this than we think. Maybe there is this sort of undergirding moralism in our lives. Now, from verse 15, this is a bit of dense doctrine. Um, I'm excited to go through this, but I want to be upfront. This is dense doctrine here. I think it's going to be very important for us to understand, to then look at this idea of the freedom of the gospel. So from verse 15, Paul addresses the reason the law was given if it was never actually going to make people right with God. Do you see what he's saying and what he's arguing or really answering the argument of is basically people saying, why was the law given? If this was never going to make us right with God, why was it even given? What was the point of it? And so Paul is reminding them the way people are justified by God has always been through the promise of his Messiah, the promise given to Abraham, the promise given to humanity effectively in Genesis 3 that a seed would come, a seed would come. And that promise is given to Abraham where God says, I will bless you. You will be a blessing to many and I will make you the father of um, a great nation. Many descendants will come from you. And this promise is given to us through this seed. And so Paul says, the law and the promise are not in opposition to each other. Now, we will come back to verses 16 and 18 later. But if you look at verse 19, Paul says, he asks, why then the law? And Paul says, the law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, what does this mean? The law was added because of transgressions. What is he talking about? There are various um, interpretations of this, but I believe a clear application we can take from this is that the law reveals our sinfulness before a holy God. The law acts as a mirror. The law acts as a, a mirror, which means it reflects God's perfect character And therefore, in reflecting his perfect character, the law acting as a mirror also reflects the fact that we are sinful. We are sinners before him. If there is any evidence of original sin, as much as I love my daughter Eliora, we see it in children where they are born naturally rebellious. Naturally rebellious. Very easy for her. It's very hard to be angry with her, though, with that face. The law was added because of sin. So the law acts as a mirror, it reflects God's perfect character, and then it reflects our disobedience. It shows us that we are sinful. So if there was no clear law explaining that it is wrong to murder, even though hopefully most of us, though our society is straying from this, would know that it is inherently wrong to murder, at least the law makes it explicit. So this is also saying that the human heart is so deceitful that we actually need a law to show us what is clearly sin because sin has so corrupted us that we don't even realize what we do is wrong. And so the law was added because of transgressions to show that sin is sin. So if God gave both the law and the promise, then the the question naturally arises from this, is the law and the the promise contrary? Like God promised to, to... to bless us, but then he gave us this law which shows that 
we can't live by the law. And we know that he said all those who don't live by the law are cursed. So how, how do these fit together? Since if all the law does is show us our sin and how we cannot attain to God's righteousness, it seems to be in opposition to God's promise of blessing us because the law results in a curse. How can we get the promise when the law is there in front of us showing us how sinful we are? But here is where the other use of the law comes in. The law points us to the promise. Luther kind of had this idea of a dual idea of the law where uh, the law um, does act to convict us of, uh, well, it shows us, it restrains evil, but it also shows us that we are sinful. But he had, had this idea that the law is also spiritual, where it's supposed to kind of uh, tell us, it's supposed to teach us something and actually guide us toward God. And so the law points us to the promise. Paul answers the question of whether the law is opposed to the promise in verse 22. And he says, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law imprisons us under sin. The law imprisons us under sin so that we would receive the promise by looking to the only one who could fulfill the requirements of the law, Jesus Christ. The law kind of keeps us so captive, so restricted because we can't live by this, that it makes us look for someone else who can. It makes us realize that we are completely unable. Paul says that we were held captive under the law, waiting for a savior until the coming faith would be revealed. So the law isn't opposed to the promise because the law points us to the promise. The law is there to point us to the promise. In verse 24, Paul explains that the law is our guardian. And this word for guardian is the same word from which we get pedagogy. If you've heard of pedagogy before, it means teaching. So Paul is saying the law is a teacher, but the idea of this teacher, particularly in the context of the Bible, is it's more of like a disciplinary teacher. It wasn't actually a teacher. It was more like sometimes you have um, you have teachers in classes, and then you have like a teacher's aide who is there for sort of like higher maintenance kids to kind of help them. But it was sort of like that, but really someone who was probably going to more punish the kids, like a disciplinary teacher. And Paul is saying that uh, the law is our teacher. A disciplinary teacher and so in a disciplinary way the law teaches us that we do not possess the righteousness God requires and it instructs us that we must look by faith outside of ourselves to receive the righteousness that God speaks of see if we had pure hearts if we genuinely had pure hearts the law would be good we could live by it the law would instruct us how we are to live But since we don't, the law acts in a disciplinary way over us. So Paul is saying that the promise and the law are all part of God's redemptive plan, but there's only one of those which was ever going to make us right, and that is the promise. But they work together to guide us along God's redemptive plan. And here's how this all fits together. The promise of blessing given to Abraham, God's blessing, his his complete approval, God's smile upon us, his blessing was given to Abraham and therefore to all of Abraham's descendants. But the issue comes in. If God is holy, 
and God cannot stand sin, then how can God actually give the blessing to a sinful people? How can we receive that blessing? We know God is a just judge. If, if a murderer was in front of a judge, even a serial killer, and the judge said, you know what, I'm in a good mood today and I did some shady stuff when I was younger, I'm going to let you go. He would be a terrible judge. Judges are supposed to be just. They must punish. Of course, God must punish sin. So this is why the law comes in. The law details God's requirements for his people to live in a way that would then receive his blessing. The law points us to the blessing because it points us to the promise. Here's how the law and the promise are connected. If we look back at verses 16 to 18, Paul says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, I said this was dense uh, doctrine here, but it's important for us to understand. So in that passage... Paul is saying, of course, the promise, the promise of God's blessing was given to the seed of Abraham. Now, we know that is Christ. We know that Christ fulfills the law. Christ doesn't come to abolish the law. He comes to fulfill the law. So the blessing to the promised seed comes because the seed who is Christ fulfills the law. So it's almost as if God gives the promise of his blessing through Abraham to his seed, which would be Jesus, who then fulfills the law to then give us the blessing back through Abraham to us. And that's how we receive the promise. This is important to understand that Jesus fulfills the law. That's how we receive the promise because It is by the faithfulness of Christ to the law of God. We spoke about this a little bit on Wednesday night. It is by the faithfulness of Jesus to the law of God, living as a man, doing all things right, being baptized, living as an obedient child, living in accordance with the true law of God in our place And that's how the righteous requirement of the law is satisfied because Jesus lived in accordance with the law in our place. God is not arbitrarily just going to say, you know what, I made a mistake. I didn't realize how difficult the law was going to be for you guys to follow. Sorry, I'll just wipe it away and give you the promise. No, he knew exactly what he was doing. That is why Jesus had to come to live in obedience with the law, which is why we don't have faith in an idea of a savior We have concrete faith in Jesus who lived as we should have but never could in our place. That's why he's our perfect high priest. That's why he's able to empathize with us. That's why we hope in him because he fulfilled God's requirements of the law in our place. So that's why we know there is no wrath toward us, but only blessing. That's why we know the curse is gone, because Christ took the curse upon himself in our place. That's why we know when God the Father looks upon us, he says the same thing to us as he did to Jesus. My son, in whom I am well pleased, because we receive 
Christ the Son's life of perfect obedience. We receive his life. That's why he says, don't cling to your life. Give it up so that you can have my life, my record of perfect obedience. That's why Paul goes on to say in verse 27, as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. You are clothed in Christ. You are clothed in his perfect record. So when God the Father looks upon you, he sees that. Not only does he wipe away your sin, but you have the perfect record of Christ. You've put him on. It's like with demerit points we have a a certain amount of demerit points um, when we're driving and and uh, if someone else is driving our car and they get caught speeding the car is registered in your name and so that obviously goes on your record but if you want to keep your perfect record that person can then fill out the form and they can say hey it was actually me driving i need i'll take the points And so you go back to your clean record. Now, the incredible thing about Christ and us receiving our record is that, of course, we deserve the points. We were driving the car, so to speak. We drove it into a life of sin. And Jesus still comes and says, I will take those points. He says before the Father, this is the whole thing of him standing in our place. It's as if Jesus comes and says before God the Father, I did it. I was driving. Take whatever sin they committed, put it on my record. I'll take the punishment. Which is why he is able to become a curse for us because he takes our punishment upon himself. So in Christ, his perfect record becomes ours. He brings us into himself that we are all one in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. There's no ethnic. There's no class. There's no gender inferiority. But in Christ, we are all equal because we receive his righteousness. We receive his perfect record. Now, what is the result of all this? This is... The, the, the main thing here, the result is that we have true freedom in the gospel. We have freedom. This is what everyone in our society wants. Everyone wants freedom. Everyone wants autonomy. They want to express themselves freely. They want to live without restraint. But freedom... True freedom is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, Paul gives this example of an heir. And he says an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, even though he's the owner of everything. So he's saying if you have an heir to this huge fortune, that heir, while he is a child, is really no different to a slave. Makes no difference because that heir is going to be under the guardianship of trustees, people who are telling him what to do, people who are making decisions for him. He's no different to a slave until he actually becomes of age. And likewise for us, until we are set free from the control of the law and these elementary principles, we will simply be slaves. We will be held captive under the law until Christ redeems us from under the law so that he transforms us 
so that we would no longer be slaves but sons and therefore the rightful heirs to all of God's promises. Now, why is this freeing? Why is this freeing for us? Why is this whole idea of the danger of reverting the law, reverting back to the law, but then coming to understand that we are justified by faith alone? Why is it freeing? And does it actually feel freeing? Rhetorical question, don't answer, but I wonder if you actually feel free. Do you actually feel free now? Because there is a wonderful freedom in this. Look at how Paul from verse 3 of chapter 4, says, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What, is this, what, are, what are these elementary principles of the world? The idea of these elementary principles is basically everything. It's a word in the original language which means everything that lies behind the structures, the ideologies of our society, everything that lies behind the powers in authority, the social powers, you know, things not simply like the, the governments, but actually things like how someone is seen as successful or cool in our society. You know, just be honest, everyone cares about their image. That's why you dress a certain way. Everyone cares about it. These elementary principles are like the things which lie behind what society tells you about how you are to seem successful or cool or how to fit in. And that's what these elementary principles are. They're things which lie behind all of these social structures and ideologies of our society. And these elementary principles enslave us. They enslave us. Paul says elsewhere in Colossians 2.8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. That's the same word there for elemental spirits as the elementary principles. It's the exact same word. And Paul is saying here, make sure no one takes you captive by these, this vain philosophy these elementary spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So we are taken captive. We are taken captive by empty deceit, which depends upon human tradition and these elementary principles. For example, many people now become enslaved by these vain principles that to be truly free and to really live, you have to find a job that expresses your individuality. You have to you know, really have a career that's going to express that. You have to live a life where you can travel, where you can enjoy the world. Otherwise, you're not free. The idea of simply finding a job where you can work and provide for your family seems absurd. Society would call you a sellout or you're just wasting your life doing that. Whereas 50 years ago, obviously the elementary principles of that society were different and it was absurd to leave a good job. Good was basically, does it provide for your family? Yes, well then stop complaining. That was basically, that was certainly the way my grandpa understood it. Whereas now there's this different air this cultural air that says, no, 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 you have to find a job that's going to like really make you happy. It's sort of this believe in yourself religion of the day, which says you, you have to flourish. You want to make sure you're really living. 
And the problem is that this idea of being truly free takes you captive because you become a slave to the world's idea of what freedom is. You know, there's just great irony in, I'm not even on Instagram, but I've seen Instagram where there's this sort of Instagram culture of like people posting pictures of how free they are because they're traveling the world and there's these sort of glamorous shots and it's like they're posting it and they need other people to see them and to see how free they are. They are desperate for other people to recognize how free they actually are. You become captive to other people's opinions because you're under these elementary principles which make you desperate for people's approval. Don't miss the reality of this. Please don't miss the reality of this. Don't be taken captive by these elementary principles. Don't be taken captive by the world's idea of what it means to live. Like Paul is saying, they, don't, they just depend upon human tradition. They don't depend upon Christ. There is this dangerous believe in yourself Christianity now that is not a Christianity. It's a life where you can basically live your own life of pleasure, traveling wherever you want, moving about, and Jesus will make it happen. And you can sort of stay safe in feeling like you're a Christian because you abide by these moral codes that I mentioned before. And that is reverting back to this thing that never saved you. That was never what God saved you for. God saved you to bring you into this life of pursuing Christ, of coming to know him deeply and intimately in every way, spending the rest of your life just swimming in this ocean of knowing Christ. That is what this is all about. One of the most influential men in human history. When I say influential, it's an understatement. You know, on Wikipedia, house, if you look at like philosophers or people, it'll say um, who they were influenced by and then who they influenced. And for this man, it has like a few people that, they, that he was influenced by. And then under the thing of influenced, it basically just says all of Western thought. And that's it. It would be too many. And that is Augustine of Hippo. In the fourth century, Augustine is one of the most significant men in human history, let alone the church. And in the mid fourth century in North Africa, Augustine was a man who was enslaved to passion, enslaved to passion, particularly lust. He was not a Christian, but he believed in God and he even wanted to become a Christian. He thought the idea of being a Christian was a noble thing. But he was shackled by his weak fleshly state, which led him to seek pleasure in fleeting sexual sin. And the slavery which Augustine describes is like being taken captive by these elementary principles of the day. He was taken captive by a world that says that satisfaction is found in sexual pleasure. Over a long period of time, God revealed his grace to Augustine and slowly led him to himself. Over this uh, slow period of time, it was a gradual process. And the way Augustine describes it is actually, it sounds almost torch tortuous. Uh, read, just listen to this. Augustine writes, 
I was beside myself with madness that would bring me sanity. I was dying a death that would bring me life. I was frantic, overcome by violent anger with myself for not accepting your will and entering into your covenant. I tore my hair and hammered my forehead with my fists. I locked my fingers and hugged my knees. This is him describing this uh, state of actually coming to know Christ as all satisfying, but it was torturous for him because what was happening was he was slowly being unshackled from all of these elementary principles of the day. Finally, there was a defining moment for Augustine where he read the words of Paul in Romans 13. Some of you might know the the story where he's in a garden and he hears some kids saying, take it and read, take it and read. And finally, Augustine comes to Romans 13, which tells us not to give ourselves to partying, drunkenness, lust and unhealthy desire, but instead arm yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Spend no more thought on nature and nature's appetites. He would spend the next 40 years of his life as a celibate monk, never giving himself to the same sexual sin ever again. He became the bishop of Carthage, a very significant post. And just listen to this quote here as I finish. He would reflect upon this this time. Listen to the way he describes both the process of the fear of losing these fleeting pleasures that he had and then what it was like to finally come to Christ as all satisfying. He says, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys, which I had once feared to lose. You know, how often, this is not part of the quote, but how often do we look at some of these pleasures in our life and we actually we know like there's this war in our flesh where we know they are fleeting but we just can't give up on them and this was augustine he said i once feared to lose them but they were really just fruitless joys and he says you drove them from me you who are the true the sovereign joy you drove them from me and took their place you who are sweeter than all pleasure though not to the flesh and blood, you who outshines all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts, you who surpass all honor. Did you catch the way he describes that? He says, you, God, drove those fleeting pleasures from me. You who are sweeter than honey. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. You drove them from me and you took their place. This is the freedom of the gospel. This is the freedom of the gospel of God's grace in our lives. He breaks into our lives and demonstrates that he is all satisfying. This is what happens when we are removed from the elementary principles of this day, from this world of law, which tells us what we are to do for pleasure, how we are to live and The only way to be freed from that is for Christ to come in as all-satisfying. The only way 
for us to be free from it is to find Jesus as all satisfying. 